You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Ed Acorn. He is the author of two books on Abraham Lincoln. We're going to discuss one of them today, and we will discuss his other one at a future date. They're both absolutely brilliant. Ed is the author, not only of Lincoln books, but he's written a couple of books on baseball, The Summer of Beer and Whiskey and 59 and 84. Thank His you. Book, oh, you're welcome. He is a Pulitzer <laughs> Prize finalist and recipient of the Yankee Quill Award for Lifetime Achievement in Journalism. And his book, Every Drop of Blood, the Momentous Second Inauguration of Abraham Lincoln, was named one of the best books of the year by Economist Magazine. But today, we are discussing his book, The Lincoln Miracle, Inside the Republican Convention That Changed History. Ed, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. Well, tell us a little bit about your career and how you developed such a such a love not only for Lincoln, but for the scholarship of Lincoln. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been a journalist for, I was a journalist for 41 years, so I covered politics quite extensively. Uh, and I've been a fan of Lincoln since I was a kid. Uh, uh, my dad got me a set of books by Bruce Catton, a great historian. Oh, was that and, the uh, Army of the Potomac trilogy? Yes. And uh, so I started falling in love with that. And I got the the trilogy on the, the centennial of the history of the war. And uh, and then I just ventured into reading everything I could on Lincoln. So I've he's always been very close to me, very dear to me. So um, after writing these two baseball books, uh, I didn't want to get just 
typecast as a baseball historian, although that was a great, great fun and a great honor to have those two books out. But um, I, I just thought, who is who do I really want to write about? And I, it was Lincoln. So I, I dared to do it, <laughs> even though there's 18,000 books on Lincoln, apparently. Isn't, isn't it Jesus, Lincoln and Shakespeare? Yes. Those are the three. Yes, you're exactly right. Yeah, that's what I hear. <laughs> what other books? I mean, I don't know how many books I've read on Lincoln. I'm going to say 30 as the guess, right? And some of them stand out. Ted Woodmer's book on Lincoln on the Verge was absolutely terrific. What are your, some of your favorite Lincoln books or Lincoln historians? We should mention the wonderful and delightfully funny Frank Williams. <laughs> utterly brilliant when all things Lincoln. Frank's a friend of mine, and he actually read this uh, book in manuscripts. So that was that was nice. And made you put it in good hands, sir. Yeah, my um, uh, I mean, I love Douglas Wilson. I think he's a brilliant Lincoln scholar, and he 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 wrote great books on Lincoln, and he also edited um, Herndon's uh, what he calls Herndon's informants, which are mm -hmm. all the letters written to uh, William Herndon, Lincoln's law partner after Lincoln's death, and these are just invaluable sources. Um, you know, David Herbert Donald, the, the usuals. Um, Stephen B. Oates, I liked his. I liked Benjamin Thomas's. Some of these yes. are dated. Um, yes. Benjamin now. Thomas is beautifully written. I mean, yeah. that's that's, a that's great my fave. Book. Yeah. Yeah. So so uh, a lot of these books and um, and then just reading everything I can from original sources as much as possible. Is it because you've read so many books on Lincoln articles, everything that you were able, and we're just going to focus on the Lincoln miracle, the 19, excuse me, 1860 convention, Republican convention in Chicago. Is it through reading all those books that you're like, you know, they don't really cover this in much detail. So did that in its own way, give you an idea? Yeah, I, I, my approach has, has been described as micro history. So like in my first Lincoln book, I looked at 24 hours in his life. And I think that just really brings out the humanity and the, and the sense that these are not these uh, all powerful, all knowing, omniscient figures. They're, they're like you and I groping in the dark and not knowing how the story would turn out. So the other, the, you know, I thought, I'd love to do the convention, um, which is really what divided Lincoln from being a nobody, from being one of the great figures of world history. Uh, just uh, six days in, in Chicago, seven days, really. Um, and so I wanted to look into that. And I discovered there's 18,000 books about Lincoln, but really no one focused just on the convention. So this is sort of new ground. And in its own way, perhaps ironic, correct me, please. Lincoln's a side character. I mean, well, he's mentioned several times in your book, right? But he's, yes. he's, he's off stage and he's waiting for the news. So it's not like if you did a book on the Emancipation Proclamation or something like that, or even Second Inaugural, which you did, where he's just in almost every page. There are several pages where he's not even mentioned. Well, this is this is how uh, conventions worked at the time. The candidates didn't dare go there. They didn't go to the convention. They just left it to their managers. But Lincoln, I think Lincoln's presence is all through the book because he's he had a very uh, 
an incredibly intelligent strategy for that convention. And, um, and basically, his whole life was the reason these delegates reluctantly turned to him as their nominee. So I, th I think he's injected on every page, even if he's not part of the action. That's exactly right. That's exactly how I read it. He's, he's not mentioned on every page, but he's involved in everything that is mentioned on every page. But to yeah. your point, there was a, and we're going to do some background uh, discussion here in just a second after this question. There was a push to have Lincoln show up in Chicago at the convention. Please tell the story. <laughs> Well, this is after Lincoln's uh, nominated, and uh, people thought, "Oh, he's well, he's just uh, what two hundred miles down the road in uh, Springfield. He should come up and address the convention." And at that point, Lincoln's uh, team was panic stricken. They said, "Don't, don't come up." I found all these. I found something like twelve telegrams in the um, in the Lincoln papers where they're all badly urging him not to come up to the convention because it was a very dicey thing. Um, and this is really the whole book, but it's uh, the, the guy who was supposed to win the nomination was William Seward, this uh, Senator from New York, who was a governor. Uh, and he was a very prominent figure. He was considered the, the founder and father of the Republican party and had all the experience in the world and link Lincoln pulls the nomination off. So they were, his supporters were very worried that it would just infuriate the Seward side of the party if, if Lincoln came up there and gloated uh, about winning the nomination. Also, they had made some uh, very dicey deals that they didn't <laughs> want to get out, uh, and they might get out if Lincoln showed up. We're going to talk about Mr. Cameron here in a few minutes. Yes. Uh, yes. So let's talk a little bit about the 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 foundation of the party, because clearly the foundation of the Republican party then is something that Lincoln cottoned to and former Whig before we get to May 1860s. What happened to the Whig party and how did the Republican party pick up the pieces in 1854? Yeah, the, the Whig party just fell apart because it couldn't compete any longer against the Democrats, mainly because of slavery. Uh, the Whig Party was reduced to being uh, northern anti-Democrats, and uh, and uh, the Democrats were strong in the north and strong in the south, so they have effectively decimated the Whig Party, and another party had to emerge. But the, the you know the th thing that struck me in my research is just what a motley assortment of people or the republicans in 1860 they were all <laughs> my party's not that much different these days Eric. yeah yeah well yeah. they were they were collected from you know basically every group that didn't like the democrats and many of these groups didn't like each other so it was a very uh difficult coalition to hold together that's one of the reasons lincoln got nominated because uh they thought seward would uh, irritate too many segments of the Republican Party. Um, so it's a very, very political story, but it's very fascinating how how all this uh, played into it. And when you say Seward decimate the party, it's because he was seen as a radical. So how would you define a radical in 1850s 
politics or the Republican Party? And we all know it has to do with one particular issue. How would you define it? Well, I wouldn't define Seward as a radical necessarily, but he was in the, he was considered that by the political professional. You know what had happened before is Seward was went into this convention just absolutely the guy who was going to win the nomination. This was supposed to be his convention. It started on his birthday. It was a, a big Seward celebration. They sent out thousands of people from New York. He had all the money, he had the institutional support. He had just traveled to Europe and met with world leaders, so he had the experience. But what had happened was John, John Brown, this militant abolitionist in, in October, the previous October, had uh, tried to incite a, an, a, an insurrection by the by the slaves in the South and uh, had raided a federal armory and planned to arm the Southerners, uh, the, uh, the slaves. And uh, so this, of course, sent terror through the South and also the North. There were many people who felt all this talk about slavery was uh, was putting this impossible, unbearable strain on the political system. And if we didn't watch out, we'd uh, bring on a, a bloody civil war. So uh, many of these swing voters were reluctant to go with Seward because Seward had been very brave and bold and spoke out very strongly against slavery. Uh, he said this is an irrepressible conflict between freedom and slavery in this country, and one has to prevail over the other. And that uh, was considered a very radical statement at the time because slavery and freedom had coexisted um, nervously in the United States since the founding. So uh, he was he was regarded as somebody on sort of the the liberal flank of the Republican Party. And he he also was um, very welcoming to immigrants. He made friends with the Catholic leaders in New York. And this was sort of uh, set off alarm bells in parts of the Republican Party that were afraid of immigration and worried that it was uh, destroying the country from within. So uh, he, the irony is Lincoln had the same exact views on slavery and, the, and immigration, but he was less well-known, so he didn't scare uh, swing voters as much as Seward did. We should mention we're talking about William H. Seward. Yes. Mention his, uh, bi the biography by Walter Starr, I believe. It's called Seward, Lincoln's Indispensable Man. It's about 10 years old. I read it when it first came out. It is a wonderful book. You really get the sense after reading it. I mean, everyone's in Lincoln's shadow, right? Like, except maybe Washington. So we can understand yeah. that Seward is in it as well. But Seward was brilliant at his job. Incredibly brave. He was almost killed twice within the span of a month. And he swindled the Russians out of Alaska, which is... <laughs> Pretty That's good. his greatest achievement. Yes, they called it Seward's Folly and <laughs> Seward's Icebox. Seward's Icebox. That's right. The Republicans had run a candidate in 1856, a fellow named John C. Fremont. He had lost to a Pennsylvanian named James Buchanan. Um, so the Republican Party by 1860 was on its second presidential race. Why did they choose to have a convention in Chicago? 
And did they enter into that convention feeling positive about the possibilities? Yeah, it started to look very good for the Republicans because Buchanan was unpopular. Uh, People in the North were getting really fed up with the way Southerners were pushing them around in Congress, sometimes literally. I mean, they attacked Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner, a a South Carolina congressman, almost beat him to death at his desk. And all this created the- Bully Brooks, Preston Brooks. Well, he yes. did. Well, I mean, Sumner did say that uh, Brooks's <laughs> uncle uh, yes. uh, thought harlot uh, slavery was his harlot. Yes, Butler Andrew Butler of South Carolina, maybe, uh, but is beautiful in my eyes. The harlot slavery, but yes, there was physical beatings, there was bullying, there was Supreme Court justices only kind of being from the South. Washington D.C. was thought as a Southern city. Right. And, all and it was also, offices. yeah. And there was also a big feeling that the Democrats were impossibly corrupt and these elites in Washington had no connection with the, the average working person in the North. So it's, that was very, that built up a lot of head, you know, headwind behind the Republicans. And also there was an increasing tension in the Democratic Party between the North and the South. And Northern Democrats felt they they couldn't win anymore going along with the South on everything. So it was it was a good condition for the Republicans going in. And they chose Chicago uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, They had hotels and it was an important swing state and all that. But uh, one of the reasons was they they thought it was neutral. The Republican National Committee thought it was neutral ground. It was no serious presidential candidate from from Illinois. And uh, of course, they were dead wrong. (laughs) Their nominee turned out to be from Illinois. But at the time they scheduled the convention, they thought, okay, this will give no advantage to any of the main candidates. That's how far out of it Lincoln was viewed. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Lincoln historian Ed Acorn. We're discussing his book, the Lincoln Miracle Inside the Republican Convention That Changed History. Talk to us, please, a little bit, Ed. We mentioned it a few minutes ago, uh, but about campaigning and how conventions were run. Chicago built this specific building called the Wigwam, which was maybe ahead of its time, for lack of a better term. But just how did it all work then? And and please take just a minute to disabuse the listeners of the notion that politics is so much more evil and hateful and insulting today <laughs> than it was in 1860. Yeah. It was very rough and rugged, and it had all it had everything to do with uh, who can get us elected. I mean, this was one of the striking things I discovered very early on in my research. These these delegates were not interested in picking the best leader to lead the country in a, in a terrible crisis. They were concerned almost entirely on who would get the most votes for Republicans on election day and who would advance their personal interests the most. And this is human nature, of course. So these conventions were were built up of uh, political professionals from around the country who were concerned about winning elections. That was that was pretty much it. Um, they came to Chicago, the the uh, which was an incredible American story at the time. Chicago 
had been a really a collection of um, a collection of cabins around a swampy river uh, just 25 years earlier. And this giant city had grown up, you know, not giant by our terms, but uh, just an extraordinary explosion of business and and transportation around Chicago. By 1860, it had 112,000 people, but it also had more rail lines connecting to Chicago than any city in the world. And that gives you a sense of what was happening to Chicago. Uh, it was a major transportation hub. They moved uh, uh, far, uh, they moved meat through there. They moved uh, agriculture through there. They moved timber through there and it was, uh, it was really exploding. So, so this was a symbol of sort of the modern America, not, not this rural past, but this rushing, driving, raging America of the 19th century. And so they built this, they, they decided, well, none of the buildings in Chicago are big enough for our purposes. Let's make a real statement. So they built this giant hall in about six weeks. And it was the largest indoor auditorium in America at the time. You could cram about 11,000 people in there, but it was all made of wood. Um, the women of Chicago, as part of this effort, uh, decorated it. They put in bunting and, and evergreens. And uh, you can imagine this, 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 this unfinished wood with evergreens and bunt and cloth with the gas lights burning, you know, and it's, uh, and they're all crammed into this building. Bruce Catton said it was probably the greatest fire trap ever built in America. <laughs> and that's probably true. And on the floor, describe what you do a terrific job in your book of describing what happens on the floor of a con the convention, the strong arming, the deal making, the celebrations. Tell us a little bit more about that. Oh, yeah. Well, um, it was it was set up with a giant stage sort of taking up a great proportion of the building and on that stage were all the delegates and the press but the delegates were in two sections with the press in the middle and Lincoln's uh man uh Lincoln's uh one a supporter on the Republican National Committee got to assign the seating on the stage so he put all the swing votes in easy uh in connection with the Illinois delegates, so they could have easy access to the swing votes. He put all the Seward supporters on the other side. So during the voting, the Seward people couldn't get across this gulf in the middle because the press was there. And uh, the Lincoln people had easy access to the swing votes and uh, were able to pitch them between votes in the very limited time between votes. So that's one of the ways Lincoln had an advantage. But a lot of the a lot of the horse trading happened outside the convention hall um, in in these smoke filled rooms. And, uh, you know, if, if the if the nomination process had been the modern one, Seward would undoubtedly have won. He had the institutional support, the money. Uh, he was from a powerful state. Lincoln had virtually no money, no institutional support. It was all in the back rooms with these grubby politicians. And uh, they chose <laughs> they chose the guy who saved the country. Now, there were no states of the Confederacy at the Republican National Convention in 1860, because there basically are no Republicans in the Confederacy. But there were That's slave states. 
that were represented. Go ahead, please, Ed. Well, that's basically right. But there was a, a Texas, very dubious delegation from Texas that uh, people immediately questioned. Uh, they appear to have been assembled from people living in Wisconsin, and they just claimed to be the Texas delegation. <laughs> that was one of the delegations that helped uh, Seward. So uh, there was a big fight on the House floor about this. Uh, but it was very, the reason there weren't delegations from the Deep South is you'd be killed if you were a Republican in the Deep South, that people would not put up with it. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, there was a, a quote in the book, this man who was a railroad executive in New York saying, you know, there's no Republican Party in, in Texas because by the next morning they'd all be dead. So uh, it was kind that's of not an exaggeration. You're not no, exaggerating. No, it's not an exaggeration. Um, so so it was very interesting that they had this fake delegation in um, <laughs> in the convention. Was there also maybe a struggle within a struggle? Another thing that your book, I'd never read, I'd read several books on Lincoln, obviously, just like everybody else has. Uh, I'd never read anything specifically about the convention. It's it's covered, obviously, in whatever yeah. biography you want to, whichever biography you want to read. But the one thing that stood out, and you did a terrific job explaining, is the growing contest, maybe conflict is too strong of a word, conflict between the entrenched northeastern New England power structure and the burgeoning, growing, hey, it's our turn, Midwestern political structure. Tell us a little bit about that that conflict, and or am I overstating it? No, but that, that was sort of symbolized by Seward versus Lincoln. I mean, Seward was from the powerful, entrenched East, and uh, Lincoln represented this sort of growing, um, uh, just wonderfully pioneering Midwest. And his story, I mean, part of the reason Lincoln's supporters were able to sell him was his life story. He had he had grown up, uh, everybody knows, he was born in a log cabin. He was self-taught. He only had like a year of school, uh, formal schooling in grammar school. And he taught himself and he worked his way up, made himself a successful lawyer. And this was a very powerful story to Americans in the North at the time, where uh, it was an increasingly democratic society, and it was really pledged to this Horatio Alger mm -hmm. uh, story, where where people can come to America and, by you know, dint of their own efforts, actually succeed and, and enrich themselves and enrich the country. And that was a very powerful story at the time. And the Midwest West symbolized that. You know, Horace Greeley said, go West, young man. And that's what he meant. Go out, go out to these areas and settle them and make something of yourself instead of being stuck in the East, living a life of quiet desperation, as Thoreau put it. Before we move on to more about the Republican convention in Chicago in May of 1860, you digress a little bit in which I thought was a very am amusing part of your book. Maybe it wasn't supposed to be amusing, or maybe I'm just too much of a political hack not to laugh at it. The Democrats had a convention, too, in Charleston, South Carolina. <laughs> Tell us how that turned out. 
is both amusing and tragic, but it was it was in Charleston, South Carolina. And it, what hap- became very apparent is the Southerners and Northerners couldn't agree. I mean, D- Douglas was the strongest candidate, but he couldn't get nominated. Stephen uh, Douglas, Senator Stephen from Illinois. Stephen Douglas Democrat. from Illinois, who had run against Lincoln in 1858 for the Senate and defeated Lincoln. Uh, he was considered the rising young star of the Democratic Party in the North, and the South was increasingly uh, turned off by him, uh, because, in part because of some of the positions Lincoln had forced him to take during the, their, their campaign in 1858. So uh, uh, they just couldn't agree. The, the Northern Democrats said, we're going to go down to defeat. And we've been sitting here while the Republicans are gaining strength in the North. We're losing our jobs. We're losing our patronage. We're losing our money, our power. Uh, we, we can't just go along with whatever the Southern Democrats want. And the Southern Democrats just refused to budge. They said, we can't make any concessions or or the whole South will be overrun politically. So it was it turned into this intenable, untenable, intractable situation. And they they actually uh, adjourned the convention without nominating anyone and tried to come back later in June after the Republicans had their convention. And to your point a few minutes ago, the Southern attitude was severely hardened or inflamed by the raid of John Brown on Harper's Ferry in 1859. There was that, and there was also a dawning sense that the North is getting stronger and stronger, and it was. It was uh, with with, uh, industrial development, with the innovation in the North, it had it had drawn uh, so many immigrants, people coming here to make a, a new life for themselves, and the power was shifting steadily to the north from the rural agrarian south. And there was a movement in the south to to, to create their own country. You know, let's let's secede. And there were people at that convention uh, um, who who were actu- actually working toward that goal. They wanted to see the Democrat Party split in half, and that would lead the way to secession, they thought, and they were right. And a lot of what was happening between within the party, between the factions, was not only cultural about slavery, but just as you said, in the fact that the Southern Democrats or the Southerners used the industrial working conditions of the North to justify keeping slaves. Yes, that was that's uh, that's an interesting part of the debate in the 1850s. I mean, the the northern anti-slavery people constantly pointed out to the conditions of slaves in the South, but the slave owners said, "Look at the conditions of of the factory workers up north." And you know, there was something to that. They northern workers had no unions; they had no sort of safety protections. They worked themselves to death, sometimes literally. Uh, and, and when they got old, they couldn't work any longer. The Southern slave owners uh, provided health care and, and of a sort and um, did not throw out old slaves. They, they allowed them to, to uh, essentially die on their plantations. 
live out their lives on the plantations when they no longer could work as hard as they had been forced to do earlier on. So they made the, this, there was this uh, argument, which, which society is crueler to the people at the bottom of the scale? And, uh, you know, of course, Lincoln argued that, and Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, the great black leader and former slave argued, um, that, uh, at least with the prospect of freedom and the prospect of bettering your life made all the difference. Um, if you had no such prospect, your life was absolute misery. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is historian Ed Acorn. We're talking about his book, The Lincoln Miracle, details the 1860 Republican National Convention in Chicago. Ed, may I ask you, is there a particular Hoosier leader and or legend you admire? Well, I mean, uh, can't say Lincoln. That's the only stipulation. <laughs> Illinois and Kentucky would get angry. It, uh, one doesn't come to mind instantly. Should I? Uh, that's a sort of a question out of left field. Uh, what about Lou Wallace or uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Oliver P. Morton, who was a fabulous uh, supporter of? You could say Larry Bird. It doesn't have to be the Civil War era. <laughs> well, uh, Larry Bird's pretty pretty darn good. <laughs> He was, he was uh, very important to me when I was younger, you know, brooding for the Celtics. So I guess I'll go with that one. Sure. In the, in the convention, as you stated, Seward is the favorite, maybe even the prohibitive favorite. We've talked about him a little bit. Let's talk, please, for a few minutes about some of other of Lincoln's other rivals. Simon P. Chase of Ohio, Simon Cameron from Pennsylvania, who's who who uttered the <laughs> one of my favorite quotes all time in politics when Simon Cameron defined a, a honest politician as a man who, when bought, stays bought. <laughs> Edward Bates. McLean, Dayton, he's got several here, but obviously Seward kind of in chase of the biggies. Talk about some of these other rivals to Lincoln and what what they brought to the table and how yeah. they eventually kind of fizzed. Yeah, Ch Chase Chase had uh, Chase was considered a very important um, leader in the Republican Party, but he didn't have a solid Ohio behind him, so he really had no chance at this convention. Uh, and people said, if we're going to go with somebody who's a sort of considered on the radical side, why not go with Seward rather than Chase? And uh, Chase Chase had a vastly exaggerated opinion of himself, I believe. I uh, constantly, his whole life, he thought he would have made it the great president. He didn't understand why other people didn't uh, perceive him that way. The, the main moderate alternative to Seward going into this convention, and many people thought he was going to actually win, was Edward Bates from Missouri, who was a, a judge. Um, 
a sort of a very conservative type. He didn't like all this talk about slavery, which he considered agitation. And he, although he was opposed to slavery, he had owned slaves and freed them. Uh, he didn't think there, were, there was any sort of electoral future in constantly disparaging slavery. And he also thought it was posed a danger to the country. So he was considered somebody who, who might actually uh, sort of stem some of the fears in the South and possibly avert the movement of secession. Uh, and he had the support of some very prominent people, the, the Blair family, which was a very powerful political family in America. And even more importantly, Horace Greeley, who was the editor of the New York Tribune, which was, he was the most uh, prominent and powerful editor in the country at the time. And he went to that convention supporting Bates. And uh, that created quite a stir because here he is, he was formerly a friend of uh, Seward and, and his manager, Thurlow Weed. And they were very close for many years in New York. And here he is at the convention advocating for Bates and saying Seward couldn't win. So that uh, created a great interest in Bates. But Bates was brought down, um, and I write about all this, because of the, the German-Americans, which is an odd thing. They, were, they made up a very small percentage of the Republican vote, but they were enough to swing elections in several close states in the North. So they had to be listened to, and they had their own convention that same week, their own national convention right down the road from the Republican one, essentially to send a signal not to nominate Bates or they would walk. Bates had been associated with the anti-immigration, know-nothing party, and they didn't want to have anything to do with that. And so these delegates had to take that seriously. So instead, you know, and going into the convention, Bates was considered much more likely than Lincoln to win the nomination. And Lincoln had even said, well, I might have to uh, support Bates, you know, if it comes to that. But but it, it actually, uh, the German-Americans put in the fear of God to the Republican Party, and uh, they couldn't they couldn't really go with Bates. So all this stuff sort of slotted into place perfectly for Lincoln. And he wasn't in control of all of it. It was really, that's why I call it the Lincoln miracle. It was really a miracle all this stuff worked together to, to advance him. Because there's no way you could have predicted he would have come out of it. Well, he, he you know, he went in as um, not considered a very serious candidate. But he was thought maybe he could be a vice presidential nominee because Illinois is such an important swing state. And that would sort of uh, make it more difficult for Douglas to carry the state. So, you know, he was viewed in that light as sort of, you know, maybe one of these favorite son candidates. But uh, he was not considered uh, top rank, um, a top rank candidate. For instance, I write in the, the book about... The first day of the book is basically May 12th, 1860. And on that day, Harper's Magazine, which is a very prominent weekly magazine in the North, um, publishes a center spread on the candidates. And Lincoln's sort of at the bottom 
bottom lower left with the also rans and Seward's in the middle in this the only one in a in an oval occupying the middle of the <laughs> the lithograph. So it's it was very clear that Seward was very strongly favored and Lincoln was a dark horse. But two things Two campaigns or two speeches, example of what you said a few minutes ago about Lincoln's rhetoric, his ability to crystallize issues into very cogent and powerful arguments, happened before the convention. That was Cooper Union, is that correct? Yes, that's And the Lincoln-Douglas debates. How did the Cooper Union speech, I think was in New York. Yes. And the debates, how did they raise Lincoln's profile to the point where he could even have been considered a dark horse? Right. Well, that's those two things were the the core of his whatever strength he had. I mean, much more prominently, his campaign against Douglas. I mean, that here was this one term congressman that served only two years in Congress. And he ran against, he was considered the sort of sacrificial lamb against Douglas, who was a very powerful, prominent figure in Illinois. And Lincoln managed to coerce him into doing a series of debates. And Lincoln more than held his own in these debates. He really uh, puts, puts, put Douglas up against the wall. And so that that got some attention around the country. And uh, and. In early 1860, the people who were didn't like Seward and were afraid of him as the uh, standard bearer for the Republican Party organized a series of lectures in New York, and they brought possible alternatives to Seward to New York uh, to make speeches, and Lincoln was one of them. And Lincoln arrived. He had a wrinkled suit. He was uh, at this country twang. He did not impress people uh, immediately when he started talking. And then as he went along, uh, people thought, wow, this guy is really incredible. He, he, uh, he can make these cogent arguments very forcefully. So that did, did help him. But he still, when he left uh, New York and returned to Illinois, he was not uh, considered a frontier candidate. Um, that had to happen in the the horse trading at the convention was he a viable candidate absolute in himself or relative to seward and the other candidates in other words were the disaffected people referencing seward looking for somebody and the other moderates weren't making him happy so they sought out someone like lincoln and it just happened to be the conventions in chicago and (laughs) well a lot of things you know uh, i have a hundred things playing into place for for lincoln during that convention i mean one of the one of the things that suggests how how woeful he was as a candidate going in was his uh great friend the judge david davis arrives in chicago to try to help with this nomination effort. And he discovers nobody's even, the campaign's so disorganized, nobody even had booked the headquarters. So he has to sort of take charge and, and book the headquarters and get started, um, which was very difficult to do because all the hotels were full. Uh, he had to pull some strings. Um, so this was like, you know, 
where how how far behind Lincoln began, but he, they quickly discovered there was a lot of uh, nervousness about Seward. So very early on, the question became who who's going to be an alternative to Seward, and Lincoln's whole strategy was go in there and just make a case. I'm not the the favorite of many people. But if you can't go with your favorite candidates, I'm a, a good second best, and here's why. And they made that argument all week, and uh, eventually uh, they made some inroads. But you know, I, I write in the book about uh, how close a thing this was. Um, the, the convention started on a Wednesday, and on Thursday, a, the Seward team won a whole series of test votes, uh, and. Seward seemed really on the verge of winning the nomination. Um, he had the audience was packed full of Seward supporters. They were all going crazy. Um, you know, Thurlow Weed, Seward's manager, had had transported thousands of people to Chicago, and they filled the wigwam and they marched in the streets and they made it look like it was inevitable for Seward. And on Thursday night, after uh, they dealt with the the platform and all these procedural issues, they decided to start taking up the nominations. And at the rostrum, they said, uh, you know, and if they had gone, gone ahead and did that night, Seward, I think, would have won the nomination. But the, the rostrum announced, uh, gee, we don't have the tally sheets available yet. It'll be five minutes. And the delegates all were like, well, we're hungry. We're tired. Let's, let's just adjourn till tomorrow morning. And, you know, uh, everybody left thinking Seward would be nominated Friday morning. And Thursday night is when the Lincoln forces actually really went to work and managed to to pick off some delegations. In your non-graded opinion, would Seward have won in 1860? I think he would have won more narrowly than than Lincoln, but I still think he would have won. Um, you know, these if questions in history are always dangerous, but that's why we um, said un- non-graded. Yeah, but he um I don't think he would have won the Civil War. I don't I think the qualities Lincoln brought to that terrible crisis were above anybody else in that convention. And Seward, you know, one of the things is Lincoln had suffered repeated defeats his whole life. He knew what disappointment was and what defeat was, and that the spirit of endure and he endured in the face of it. Uh, and he had terrible depression all his life. He endured in the face of that. And I think th- that gave him strengths to survive that war that Seward wouldn't bring. I mean, Seward was you know, very early on, a, a spectacularly successful politician. He was the boy governor of New York, and he was, you know, a leading figure in the U.S. Senate, and very different from Lincoln, who had suffered defeat after defeat. So, uh, And yeah, Seward think, ended up being a marvelous, marvelous Secretary of State. Yeah, initially, Seward tried to manipulate it, so... Lincoln was a figurehead, and Seward would be the power behind the throne. But Lincoln quickly uh, put the kibosh to that. He uh, Lincoln quickly asserted that he's running the operation, and Seward came around to realizing 
you know, far from being Seward initially thought this this convention's a joke. I mean, they picked this rail splitter uh, over somebody with experience and Washington experience, international experience. It's it's just a joke. But Seward came to to realize early on this is an, an un, unbelievably skilled politician. And he okay. he actually said to his wife, uh, as an executive, uh, Lincoln's the best of us. And that he it says something I think quite striking about both men that Seward became Lincoln's closest friend and supporter during that war. And I think Seward did a lot to help Lincoln win that war. Um and that was a tough thing to do, and and he did it. And Lincoln didn't take offense. <laughs> Over Seward's very latent attempts to to sort of seize power in the administration, he just dealt with Chase's Chase's not so latent attempts. Yes, Chase actually, as Secretary of the Treasury, tried to mount a campaign to topple Lincoln (laughs) in eighteen sixty four, but. it's like uh, Jefferson, uh, Thomas Jefferson, yes. uh, sub- funding the anti-Washington administration <laughs> newspaper while he is Secretary of State to George Washington. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We have a few more minutes with Edward Acorn. He is the author of the wonderful, wonderful book, The Lincoln Miracle, Inside the Republican Convention That Changed History. Uh, dark Horses are some of our favorite topics when we come to political history i think i don't know if james k polk is considered the first dark horse but let's <laughs> let's say for argument that he is just exactly try to try to if you could put a percentage on it how much of a dark horse was lincoln what what out of a hundred what percent of chance would you have given him to be nominated at the end of april 1860 well, uh, from the hindsight of history, it was a it was a high percentage because none of these other candidates perfectly fit the mold of what the party needed to do at that time. But going into the convention, people regarded him as what five percent have five percent chance. You know, the the I mentioned that Harper's uh, weekly uh, piece and. There was a writ write-up section, too, as well as the illustration, and Seward had this big, long write-up at the beginning, and and Lincoln was at the dead end of it, a very short, brief paragraph about Lincoln. And this is how how they viewed it at the time. Seward was, was, you know, just the giant of the Republican Party. But, you know— Go ahead. Go ahead. We just look at it, and it's like, okay, all these things— it had to be Lincoln. It all slotted into place perfectly. And, you know, the delegates, uh, I, I quote some journalist who was at the convention saying, like, these delegates had no idea what they were nominating. They they were nominating this, okay, this, this uh, guy who was a good speaker and he was, um, he told funny stories and he was popular with his constituency and so forth. But they had no idea the stature of Lincoln, his, his unbelievable powers of endurance, his his gift for the English language. Really, I mean his his um, his intense political pragmatism, his sense of timing, like when when you could make a move in that war and when his, you could not. 
his patience, um, his patience, his kindness is all that stuff. And, and that, you know, these, this, this writer, uh, thought, well, that shows that the almighty had a hand in this because we didn't know what we were doing at that convention. We, and it really was a miracle. And was the, the temperature of the convention, the thought of the convention, one of no matter who we nominate, we know what's coming. In other words, if they, if they thought that they could have avoided a civil war, would they have nominated someone else? Or as Lincoln once said, you know, the tug has to come. It may as well come now. No, I, I think the Republicans, including Lincoln, didn't think it would come to a civil war. They thought there was too much uh, love of the country in the South to, to ever permit that to happen. And they were dead wrong. They misread um, the mood of the South at that time. Uh, so, you know, I don't think they, I don't think the selection had anything to do with who would deal with secession. I think it had to do with who would win in November. You know, and all the, you know, the deals, Lincoln people made deals overnight that, uh, you know, they traded cabinet positions for support, uh, especially Cameron. with with Cameron, who you mentioned, who was representing the Pennsylvania delegation. And actually, uh, you know, Lincoln had sent a message up to his his people saying, make no deals in my name, because he he realized it would be very important to control patronage if he got the nomination and won the election. And Lincoln's people were, you know, fit to be tied when they got this message, you know, what are we going to do? We have to make deals or he's not going to get nominated. And, and David Davis, his manager, said, oh, Lincoln ain't here. You'll have to. <laughs> you'll have my to, favorites. Yeah, Lincoln ain't here. He'll have to deal with what we come up with, you know, later on. And they made deals, you know, some in some cases, like they, they, I think they promised the treasury to the Cameron, which would have been a absolute disaster. Lincoln eventually made him Secretary of War, which was a uh, disaster. Which was a disaster as well. But you could imagine the treasury; it would have been incredible. When he, uh, when Simon stopped being Secretary of War, he was. Am I getting this right? He was sent. He was ambassador or minister to Russia. Yes. And one of his colleagues said, upon hearing that, I hope the czar will bring in his thanes of the night. <laughs> Mr. Cameron had some sticky fingers, uh, to say the least. We talked about Stewart and, and Lincoln's rivals, which are explored even more deeply in Team of Rivals, Doris Kearns Goodwin's terrific book. How did Seward take his defeat? How did Chase take his defeat? Well, Ch Chase was obviously uh, very depressed, but he wasn't really in the running, so he had to deal with it. Seward was Seward had been getting telegrams all week at his uh, mansion in Auburn, New York. Don't worry, this is all set. It's looking great for you. It's beyond any doubt at this point. Even Friday morning, when the convention voted, he got a telegram saying, "This is in the bag. Don't worry about it." Um, and so he, when he, when he got the telegram in his garden, Lincoln nominated on third ballot. He was, he took it 
well. I mean, he walked in and and didn't he didn't he just looked a little white in the face, and he 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 just sort of accepted it, and he went. He actually wrote an editorial for the local newspaper supporting Lincoln, apparently. Um, but he and his friends all thought this was this convention was ridiculous in choosing somebody like Lincoln over Seward. And would if would Seward have been nominated if the convention had been in New York City or in New York, in your view? Uh quite possibly, although Seward's I mean, Seward's manager, Thurlow Weed, who had really guided his career. He went all out to, to yeah. send thousands of people to, to Chicago and they marched in the street. You know, one of the one of the stories in the book is on that Thursday night when the Lincoln people were scrambling, uh, somebody on the team figured out, let's print up some counterfeit tickets and forge the names of Republican officials on them. <laughs> and they gave those tickets out to their Lincoln supporters. So the Seward men were out on the street. The Seward men who held legitimate tickets were out on the street that morning, marching, you know, the final victory parade for Seward going into the convention. And they get to the convention hall and their seats have been taken by the Lincoln men. And and the, the, the volume of screaming for Lincoln quite possibly affected some of the voting in the in the hall. So, you know, they pulled every sort of trick to... Uh, Win this nomination is quite funny, actually, when you read it. Ed, you need to do a tour and go to every college political science and history class and every <laughs> high school civics class and say, if you think it's bad now, <laughs> let's talk about 1860 or basically almost any other year. I mean, uh, Kennedy, John Kennedy's campaign sent FDR's son into Franklin Roosevelt's son into West Virginia in eight, 1960 to accuse Hubert Humphrey of being a draft dodger in World War II. I mean, this stuff never, <laughs> never ends and it will never end. We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Ed Acorn, are you ready? Uh, I should have studied this ahead of time. Oh, that's okay. These are even, these are even less gradable. <laughs> They're easy. Okay. What, was your, what was your first job? Uh, well, aside from summer jobs, <laughs> sure. Whatever you want to say, you could say long cutting grass. That's popular. I was, yeah, I, I, well, my first job was delivering newspapers. So, uh, that was uh, very early on. And, uh, I actually worked my way up to being the delivery guy at a factory in my hometown. So that was a great job. You just sat there and while they came out, they would throw 15 cents at you and get the paper and leave. So that was a, a great job. What's your um, hometown? Hometown of Westboro, Massachusetts, which is uh, known mostly as the birthplace of Eli Whitney, who I, I blame for the Civil War. Since yeah, you're not the only one, that's for sure. <laughs> Number two, what was your first concert? Oh, uh, possibly George Harrison uh, in Providence, really? Rhode Island. <laughs> yes. No, actually, I went to uh, I went to an Emerson Lake and Palmer concert on Cape Cod in 1973. So that was probably it. The, their their version of "Fanfare for the Common oh, yes. Man" is one of my favorite covers ever. Great stuff. Number three, if you could suggest. Any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Well, uh, 
barring mine, I would recommend The Glory of Their Times, which is a book about baseball. And it's it's a set of interviews with ball players from the early 20th century, late 19th century. Uh, and it basically is all about America. He, it, it tells you what the society was like at the time and what young men aspired to be. And it's just a wonderful book. And I, I tried to breathe that spirit into to all of my books. So that's a great book, I think. I don't recall directly. I could be wrong here, but we had George Will on the podcast and his answer was something like that. (laughs) He's a baseball nut. Yes. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Well, I would go back and see the, the teaching of Jesus Christ just to see on the Mount. Yeah, that would be a great start. (laughs) And I, I don't think it would be like the Monty Python version, but maybe. Uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> too much and of I life just, is already like the Monty Python version. And I would, you know, I'd, uh, uh, as a B uh, second secondary, I would love to see Lincoln carry on and just see what his facial expressions and and him telling a joke or something like that. That would be amazing. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose? Ooh, that's a, that's a really tough one. You know, I do get to have dinner with one of my heroes all the time. I'm very close friends with Gordon Wood, the great oh. Great American I would love to have him on the podcast. I've had several revolutionary era, uh, John Fairlane and others, but his writings are, I'm sorry, I just interrupted you. You don't know. I fanboyed there for about five seconds. Well, I'm glad you did. He's my, he's my hero. And he's, he's been very, he very kindly read these, all of my books basically. And, uh, and we have great lunches together, and he's really informed my understanding of the early republic and and what we come from. And he's just an amazing man. Still, he's in his late eighties, and he's still as sharp as ever. One of one of the most brilliant historians in all of our history. Do you want to stick with Mr. Wood, or you want to? <laughs> I think just just because I know there's somebody I would love to meet with, but uh, I'm not bringing him up or her up. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Our guest today has been Edward Acorn. He is the author of two acclaimed books about Abraham Lincoln. We discussed one of them today, The Lincoln Miracle, inside the Republican convention that changed history. And he's very graciously agreed to come on again to discuss every drop of blood, the momentous second inauguration of Abraham Lincoln. Both books are absolutely terrific. And I encourage you to read them 
Ed, sir, thank you so much for your time. It's great to see you, and I look forward to talking to you again. Oh, thank you so much. What fun to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.